Welcome, I'm Rose Aguilar, and this is your call. After the January 6th insurrection, major media outlets largely focused on rioters like the QAnon shaman, the Proud Boys, and the Oath Keepers, which include members of the military and law enforcement officers. Now, those stories are very important, but today's first guest, Professor Robert Pape of the University of Chicago, says so many in the media are missing the bigger picture. Professor Pape and his team have studied the over 1,000 people who've been charged with crimes related to January 6th, and they found that half are doctors, lawyers, corporate executives, architects, and other professionals. These are what he calls mainstream and affluent individuals. He told Amanpour and company that in all the years he's been profiling politically violent individuals, he has never had to have a category called business owner. He cites one example of a gynecologist who works at a very famous Boston hospital who is seen in videos slugging it out with Capitol Police in the rotunda. An Intel executive is also seen slugging it out with police and taking their batons and bashing them over the head. Professor Pape says the findings, quote, paint a new startling reality. The insurrectionist movement is mainstream, not simply confined to the political fringe, end quote. So what does this mean for the future of this country, political violence, and those of us who actually care about solving real issues? We'd love to hear from you if you have any questions about January 6th and Professor Pape's findings. What are your thoughts about media coverage of where we are in this moment? You can give us a call at 866-798-8255. You can also email your call at kalw.org. I should also say, what does this mean for those of us who are shocked by the level of political violence that is happening in this country? Robert Pape is professor of political science at the University of Chicago specializing in international security affairs. He's the director of the Chicago Project on Security and Threats, which seeks to produce top international security scholarship with policy relevance in order to reduce security threats and enhance stability across the world. Hi, Professor Pape. Thank you for your work and thank you for joining us. Uh, Thank you, Rose, for having me. Well, you have spent 30 years studying terrorist groups around the globe. Why did you decide to so extensively analyze who was charged in connection with the January 6th attacks? Uh, well, this actually started, Rose, uh, almost a year before January 6th. Uh, in March 2020, um, as we all know, we had the pandemic. As we all know, we are having the lockdowns. Um, but my experience in studying political violence led me to worry about some things that I think few others were really concerned about in March 2020. You see, when the governments of countries fumble and their populations come to believe the governments are not making them safe, that tends to encourage support for mass political violence, much different than the country has experienced in the past. Now, of course, America is a democracy. We're a very well-off democracy. We have lots to, to, to love about our country. However, um, March 2020, um, we definitely saw the government fumbling. We definitely saw mass deaths related to COVID and, you know, president telling us to, to do awful things like drinking certain things that would probably kill us. Uh, and what ended up happening is um, the country began to lose confidence in our government for security. So I began to vector our research teams into studying political violence patterns in the United States. Now, we had been doing this in other countries around the world for a long time, 30 years, as you as you just said, but not really in the United States. And so when January 6th happened, we couldn't, we weren't really predicting it exactly, but we were extremely concerned about it, uh, extremely concerned about President Trump's call in that uh, debate, that famous debate your listeners remember for the Proud Boys to stand back but stand by. So we were really uh, ready um, and we launched right away into a major effort to understand the detailed demographics of each and every person who was charged with offenses for breaking into the Capitol on January 6th. 
Professor Pape, I'm so glad you brought up the COVID pandemic. If we can go back to that time for a moment. I feel like so much is going on in this country and we so quickly move on from major events. Can you talk about, and I think about this a lot because I know so many people whose views drastically changed during COVID. Can you talk about what stands out for you when you look at how people were radicalized during the pandemic? What what really stands out, Rose, is... um, there is a history of what pandemics do to countries politically. Now, this was not discussed much in the media in, in the years of the pandemic because we're so focused on ourselves and what should we do to keep ourselves alive. However, you should know that political scholars have been studying this, and there's a basic finding that goes back hundreds of years, Rose, which is what pandemics or disease, spread of mass disease like the plague, the Black Plague, do to a society is they cause political fragmentation. They take the political weaknesses in the society and make them much worse. So, yes, it's true. We were polarized as a country before the pandemic. Yes, it's true. We had hate problems with hate groups before the pandemic. But to simply say that what we're experiencing today is a straight line going back decades in our country just misses that what really happened is we went through a period of years of mass radicalization and polarization on political issues in our country. Uh, and we're still reeling from that. You don't recover from that because the pandemic goes away. Uh, 20 years from now, that may be a different story, Rose, but that's the level at which the pandemic shocked the society. And America's not unique. In fact, it fits a historical pattern. And this is really why we're still feeling the reverberations of this. And this is not going away. The political fragmentation and radicalization is not disappearing as the virus has subsided. So going from COVID to January 6th, we should point out that you and your team did so much research here. Not only did you pour through all of the court documents of those who've been charged or convicted in connection with the January 6th insurrection, but and we're talking about hundreds of documents in some cases related to each person, but you all also went through their social media posts and then you read stories in local papers. Uh, Professor Pape, this this sounds like a major, major project you all undertook. It's a major project, Rose, beyond what even well-funded newspapers can do. So uh, newspapers typically will have a team of four or five, I know, because I talk to them all the time. Uh, We have teams of 20 and 30. And we are at it not just for a period of a few months or a few weeks as we're trying to sell papers. We're not trying to sell anything. We're working at the University of Chicago. And so we have the luxury of time that other organizations do not have. And you are quite right that there have been, as of January 9th this this year, just as of a few weeks ago, 1,167 individuals charged with um, uh, crimes and offenses related to January 6th. And what our research teams do and have been doing now for three years uh, is go over all of those, the indictments, the processing, the uh, updates on the indictments, the sentencing documents. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of pages of material. Uh, we then go to their hometowns. We go to, uh, say, if someone is arrested in, in Portland, we'll go to the Oregonian. Uh, we will search through the local hometown newspapers because many local journalists will in fact follow up but these are you you these are not easy to do on say google i mean imagine you're gonna your listeners just sit down and try to do um google searches for 1100 separate individuals (laughs) and i think pretty quickly you'll see this is not something that you're going to do or even just with a handful of your friends however with research teams, uh, we organized at the University of Chicago in my center, the University of Chicago Project on Security and Threats. We've been doing these for 20 years, this kind of research, team research efforts. You really can um, go through, and then we can also fact check ourselves. We can red team ourselves. Um, and that's why our research has been so respected by the January 6th committee, the FBI, DHS, 
uh, the administration in general, members of Congress, so uh, also newspapers, also uh, Christian Amanpour, as you're as you're explaining. Um, uh, and it's because this really does bring a new wealth of information that uh, simply those images on January 6th of uh, a handful of cult-like figures or the handful of militia group members who are easy to spot, of course, because they're wearing combat fatigues. Um, this just misses the big picture about what happened on January 6th. How should we think about this, Professor Pape? Because the Proud Boys obviously... It's important to know about who these people are. The Oath Keepers, they include members of the military and law enforcement officers. We need to know who they are. But they say, you say, equally as important, we need to know that we're also talking about business executives, doctors, lawyers, architects. So how should we be thinking about this? That's right, Rose. So I'm glad you mentioned we're not trying to sweep under the rug the the Proud Boys or the Oath Keepers. So please, I hope our audience, the audience doesn't think that. But it's important to know that of the 1167 who are the Jan Sixers uh, who have been charged so far, only 12 percent are militia group members like from the Oath Keepers or Proud Boys. That means almost 90% were not. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned in your intro, but it's worth repeating that uh, oh, half are doctors like uh, from famous uh, Boston, uh, gynecologists from famous Boston uh, college um, uh, hospitals, um, uh, uh, CEOs from famous um, uh, companies like here in Schaumburg outside of Chicago where I, where I live, uh, CEOs or business executives from Intel. Uh, another good example are mega donors to the Republican Party and Donald Trump, individuals where we have pictures of the individual at the White House Christmas party in 2018 with Laura Trump and Mike Pence and then pictures of them surrounded by five police because they're, they want the police, they're daring the police to shoot them. Uh, they are that violent. Uh, so we're not talking also about people just waltzing through, as you're seeing on, say, Tucker Carlson, which is a gross misrepresentation of, of what happened. So by going through this massive amount of information, this really challenges this whole rewriting of history that you're seeing by uh, the far uh, the far right and Tucker Carlson that's basically also rose been essentially unchallenged over the last year. You see, much of the centrist and liberal media has essentially taken for granted they know the story. Um, and they are not really, they're re- regurgitating things they've said a million times before, but it's not really showing the new and the really disturbing problem that what happened on January 6th, Rose, is Donald Trump was not only willing to launch an insurrection against the country, he had the capability to inspire mainstream and even affluent of supporters of his, people from the middle class and above who had a lot to lose, he had the capacity and willingness to inspire those mainstream individuals to launch the insurrection. Uh, this It failed, of course, but this is why... Uh, January 6th was such a dangerous moment for our country and why putting the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys out of business is not real. It provides, that's a good thing we did that, Um, but it's not really providing us um, confidence that this can't happen again because you don't need the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys. They simply weren't that big of part of the story. Robert Pape is professor of political science at the University of Chicago, specializing in international security affairs. Professor Pape and his team have extensively studied the over 1,000 people who've been charged and arrested with crimes related to January 6th. They found half are doctors, lawyers, corporate executives, architects, and other professionals. He says these are mainstream, affluent individuals. The insurrectionist movement is now mainstream, not simply confined to the political fringe. If you have a question or comment for Professor Pape, we'd love to hear from you. You can give us a call at 866-798-8255. You can also email your call at kalw.org. Professor Pape, 
You have so many interesting stories. I mean, the gynecologist stories is very interesting. A gynecologist who works at a very well-known Boston hospital was slugging it out with police. You've got an example of an Intel exec who took batons from the police and bashed them over their heads. I'm sure you've got many, many stories. What is the through line with these people? Why did they, like, what is their worldview? Well, the, the through line, and, and let me just tell you, these are not ex- lone exceptions. So um, we have Beverly Hills doctor with a Stanford law degree who's also pushing through police to break into the Capitol, not simply walking through a uh, uh, an open door. Um, we have anesthesiologists uh, um, uh, who are uh, taking batons from police officers and then beating them right back with those uh with those batons uh we have long island lawyers with jds of course i mean uh, somebody with a jd not just a ba uh who's doing the same thing grabbing batons so when they say well they didn't bring weapons with them well in fact they made weapons or took weapons from the police who were right there um, and this was something that this, this actually happens, uh, in violence around the world, political violence around the world. So it's important to understand this isn't just us describing people who came in later, you know, after everything was over and they're kind of walking through empty hallways. Um, they are, uh, coming as giant mobs to hang Mike Pence, for example, to where's Nancy, uh, here, um, as police are trying to keep them away. So I just want to give more of a flavor for your listeners of just how extensive the middle class and affluent were, um, who were involved, um, and that's really, it's shocking. And in many ways, Rose, it's, it's kind of comforting for us to think, oh, the folks involved in violence are part of a fringe. They're living under a rock somewhere and they're very few in number. And all we have to do is get rid of these few tiny number of bad apples and uh, everything is good. What's really special about what, uh, what's been happening, uh, what's happening in our country is the mainstream and persistent nature of political violence that we are experiencing, which is simply not normal for the United States. And I'm sorry to say the risks of this are not simply, um, haven't simply disappeared because it's been three years since January 6th. Uh, in 2025, we are about to, we're going to go through an election. And the, do you know the date, Rose, when we will, uh, we're supposed to certify the uh, winner of the 2024 election in Congress? It's January 6, mm. 2025, the same day. Uh, and that is going to be quite an important period of time for our country, the months before, the months after, indeed the months between now and then, because we're simply not through this problem. What stood out for you when you read about the views of these people, where they stand and what what brought them to January 6th? Thank you, Rose. We we have extensive reports on our website. If your listeners would like to uh, go, it's the Chicago Project on Security and Threats, CPOST, C-P-O-S-T. Uh, and we have extensive reports of the mindset of those who assaulted the Capitol on January 6th. And the reason we can do that is in all the court documents and often in interviews that they gave with local reporters, uh, um, what you see is they were very willing to explain their thinking. You might think that, um, that they, they all would want to just shut up or just listen to lawyers who would say, don't say anything. Rose, these folks are true believers. Um, many of them, you can't, act, they, they wanted to post videos about why they did it. And the bottom lines are this. Um, they are doing it and they say directly, uh, because their president, told them they were had just gone through a corrupt election that they actually won but was being stolen from them and then their president called them to come to January 6 and their president told them to storm the capitol those are the reasons that these folks give over and over and over again 
And again, we have 50-page reports summarizing these findings uh, on our CPOST website. This is not, uh, you know, based on just a, a handful of selected quotes here or cherry-picking there. Um, this is the overwhelming reason why those uh, 1,167 um, gave for what they did and why many of them, although they're sorry they're being... Um, they're caught, they're being prosecuted. Uh, they're not actually giving up. Most of them do not renounce their political objectives on that day. Uh, there's only, uh, you know, I'd say probably about a third of them have, uh, have regrets of being punished. Uh, that's when we read them in their, in their sentencing documents. But only like 5% have actually uh, re, um, rejected the idea that uh, Donald Trump is not the legitimate president to this day. Only a tiny number say Joe Biden is actually the duly elected president. Um, some of them are running for office <laughs> now um, uh, as on this without uh, being embarrassed whatsoever. They're saying they were right um, with Donald Trump telling the world that they're hostages and they should not be punished because what they did was right. Uh, he told them they he loved them. So what you're seeing, Rose, is a mindset where they really believe that they were doing a patriotic duty. Robert Pape is professor of political science at the University of Chicago, specializing in international security affairs. Now we'd like to welcome Jeff Charlotte to the show. Jeff is best-selling author or editor of eight books, including The Family, The Secret Fundamentalism at the Heart of American Power, which was adapted into a Netflix documentary series. His latest book is The Undertow, Scenes from a Slow Civil War. Jeff Charlotte is professor in the art of writing and director of creative writing at Dartmouth College. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for joining us again. Hi, Jeff. Are you with us? Hi, Rose. Hi, Rose. Hi. Good. Great to have you, Jeff. So we've been talking with Professor Pape about his team's extensive research about those who attended the January 6th insurrection. And he says so many in the media are missing the bigger picture by focusing on the QAnon shaman, the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys. Of course, that's important. But he says half of those people who've been charged with crimes were doctors, lawyers, corporate executives, architects, uh, and OBGYN in one case. And this really needs more attention. You've been studying all of this for years, Jeff. What are your thoughts about that? I mean, I think we can see last night in New Hampshire, uh, we can see in the broad surveys of the movement, Professor Pape is absolutely correct that the media tends to want to dismiss uh, dismiss the Trumpist movement, which I think it can barely now be called a fascist movement, as a fringe. And it, the, the danger with fringe thinking is it's always sort of easy to do one by one. I think of uh, some traveling I did around Wisconsin after Roe fell, talking to people who were happy about that, and each one of these these abortion opponents, and each one told me an even more outlandish version of human reproductive biology. They did not know the birds and the bees. They didn't know how bodies work. They had crazy conspiracy ideas, and each one you could dismiss as fringe, except that this this great assemblage of fringe had been part of a movement that had, in fact, overturned Roe. I think fringe is not a useful category. Um, I... Uh, the, the only flip side, and I, I'm a real admirer of Professor Pape's work, the only flip side that I'm wary of in media misunderstandings is we go from the idea, oh, this is just a bunch of fringe nuts to, oh, these are all affluent people and it's only affluent entitled people. The reality of the fascist moment and why it's a threat is it's all of these. It's it's. It's yes, it's a convergence of a whole lot of people. It is a broad, a broad social movement that is drawing from every strata of society uh, and increasingly so. And I think that's another thing that we want to confront. Um, it's it's uh, it is drawing the Trump base is expanding into all the demographics that are traditionally associated with not fascism, with people of color, with queer folks, with young folks, Um Fascism has a powerful gravity and, and, and in any way in which we give ourselves a reassurance narrative of it's only these people, um, 
uh, is avoiding that. So I'm glad, I'm glad for, for Professor Pape's work. And I just sort of want to warn those who, who flip it on its head and say it's just a few, and this is not Professor Pape's work, but I see this sometimes in the media. It's only affluent, uh, upper middle class white people. Um, if it were only that, it would not be so powerful. And Professor Pape made that point earlier that, of course, the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, they're all important. But his point is that you're not really hearing about the affluent doctors, lawyers, OBGYNs in the media. They love to talk about the QAnon shaman, for example. I think the QAnon shaman is important, actually. I'll, I'll, I'll argue this. And here's again where I said, you know, I, I think a lot of the ways in which um, because I'm not a, a, a sociologist or a political scientist, but I'm I'm I'm, I'm trying to read these stories the way I, um, you know, I'm in an English department. I'm uh, thinking about literature. You go to the margins in order to understand the center. Uh, you know, Joan Didion, that great writer, famously says, "We tell ourselves stories in order to live," and that sometimes gets taken as a self-help positive bromide. But you've got to read deeper into Joan Didion. She doesn't mean all the stories are good. QAnon is a tell a story we're telling ourselves a conspiracy story. Uh, it's a revamping of the old uh, 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 of old anti-Semitic stories of of uh, a secret elite that is you know drinking the fluids of of innocent children and so on. These are the stories that the country as a whole, uh, a number of people are telling themselves. So I think yes, the kind of sensational ha ha gawk and look at QAnon shaman. That's useless. Um, uh, if anything, I would like less stories about the QAnon shaman. And, uh, you know, as I've written, I wrote about George Riley, uh, uh, a convicted January Sixer, who was not an affluent figure. He was, though, a connected person in Northern California working for the local Republican Party, um, uh, a Native American uh, who made a video in Nancy Pelosi's office saying, look, I took my land back. Um <laughs> And imagined himself like a figure from the Zack Snyder Gorefest, the movie 300, the Spartans versus the Persians and 300 brave warriors. And he says, I'm like that movie. Only one was left to tell the tale. And I said, but George, almost all of you are left to tell the tale and you just keep telling it. You don't stop talking. But it's important to understand that in his imagination and in the martyr myth that grows out of it, um, there are these the J6 singers, these people, in the, I think Professor Pape referred to these people in prison, um, some of them doctors and, and, and affluent folks um, who become the survivors. They become like Ish, uh, 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 Ishmael and Moby Dick, you know, the last one there to tell the tale um, of a, a moment of great peril and crisis. That's the story the voters who turned out in New Hampshire yesterday um, and gave Trump a big victory and a bigger victory than the press is reporting because they're, I mean, I teach at Dartmouth college. I can tell you every student I encountered was voting for Nikki Haley, not because they supported Haley, but because they wanted to stop Trump. They weren't registered Republicans. They were, as Trump said, independence voting. The Haley vote was massively inflated. The Trump base expanded and is telling themselves the stories of persecution. Well, b before we go to break, that's the question I wanted to ask next, Professor Pape. How big is this movement? I mean, how should we think about this? Jack just wrote in from Berkeley. Very relevant discussion. Yesterday, during NPR's coverage of New the New Hampshire primary, a woman was interviewed about the election, and she giggly recounted being at the insurrection, but left before the bad stuff happened. Jeff, or I'm sorry, Jack writes, I think this is part of the bigger picture. The people who thought it was somehow acceptable or normal to participate in this event, shocking and concerning. And then, Professor Pape, to think about those who were not there that day, but completely support it. Is there any idea, any way of knowing how big this is? Well, there, there is. Um, I think, uh, first of all, I just want to let Jeff know that, um, Jeff, I taught at Dartmouth for five years <laughs> in the 90s and was at Silsby every day working. Oh. So just so you know. <laughs> Um, but I just want to say that Jeff is exactly right. Um, and, but let me just make a point about the big misconception in the media. The big way the media is letting us down, Rose, is this idea there's a ceiling on Trump's support that means it's easy to just dismiss him and get rid of him. So the more the media paints the Trump voter as only um, rural, only college uneducated, 
basically uh, rednecks in pickup trucks. Okay, the more they're missing, and then they paint that as the ceiling of Trump's support. And then, of course, it should be pretty easy to get rid of them. And maybe, you know, then you can understand the logic of, well, if we indict him, he'll go away. And there won't. But in fact, what's happened in the last year is that with the Trump indictments, and you see this in our nationally representative surveys, Rose, which we've done in addition to this, and we've done 12 nationally representative surveys uh, almost every three months now. The, late, the latest will be coming out in The Guardian this weekend. Um, of uh, And what you see is that the indictments have actually grown Trump's support. And where is it growing? It's not simply growing among college, uh, non-college. It's growing among college educated as well. And so it's, I, I really think this is just a real problem that we have with um, that uh, we, we just aren't taking fully enough the potential of this movement to expand. And by not understanding the real components of January 6th, we're missing the big picture of Trump's radical support today and how it can actually grow. And there can be unintended consequences to well-meaning efforts to save democracy. They're actually endangering democracy. We're going to take a quick break. Robert Pape is professor of political science at the University of Chicago. Jeff Charlotte is the author of many books, including The Family, The Secret Fundamentalism at the Heart of American Power. It was adapted into a Netflix documentary series. His latest book is The Undertow, Scenes from a Slow Civil War. Today, we're talking about the January 6th violent movement. It's not main, is, is mainstream. It's not just the political fringe. This is your call. We'll be back after this. This is your call. I'm Rose Aguilar. Coming up tomorrow, we'll discuss why powerful men like Jeffrey Epstein, R. Kelly, Bill Cosby, Harvey Weinstein, and Donald Trump were able to get away with sexual assault for so long, even as women and in some cases girls stepped forward to bravely share their stories. We hope you can join us for that show tomorrow. Today, we are talking about research that shows the January 6th violent movement is mainstream. It is not just the political fringe. Today, we're joined by Robert Pape, professor of political science at the University of Chicago. He and his team have extensively covered this issue and researched this issue. Jeff Charlotte is the author of many books, including The Family. His latest is The Undertow, Scenes from a Slow Civil War. Jeff Charlotte is professor in the art of writing and director of creative writing at Dartmouth College. Jeff, Professor Pape was talking about how the media often refer to these people. I'm wondering what your thoughts are now, because I got to say, I was really struck last night listening to NPR's New Hampshire coverage, and NPR's Mara Liason said the GOP is now a blue-collar party, and Trump wants to save Social Security. That was odd. Trump has been saying he wants to save Social Security. Trump says a lot of things. Um, uh, we don't have to take them at face value. Um She's right in the sense of a, a something of a working class realignment, especially a white working class, class realignment, but not only a white working class realignment. It doesn't mean, though, that it's a blue collar party in the sense. And, I, and here I would point to the, one of the ways in which the media isn't covering uh, this movement is to see it as a movement of many facets, right? So we have the rhetoric of Trump on the stage, but we also have things like Project 2025 being led by the Heritage Foundation with 74 other powerhouse organizations, 400 contributors, many of them former Trump officials, lining up 5,000 lawyers to defend 900 pages of policy recommendations for Trump too from day one. And if you look at that, one of the things they're very explicit about is giving more power to management. Here's our blue collar party and their goal is to give more power to management. Their goal is to slash and burn what we're experiencing as a labor renaissance. So there's a kind of um, uh, if you say so element of that that I still think happens in a political press that is really constructed for a kind of horse race politics from another time that doesn't exist now, where you just repeat, well, this candidate says X and this candidate says Y. Maybe we go so far as to say Trump's language is, language is racially charged. It's racist. Or we say it's baseless. No, it's a lie. It's false. Baseless means we don't have the evidence. A lie is a deliberate uh, obfuscation. Um, and uh, I think uh, this is 
this is maybe the biggest problem we have right now is that our media is not prepared for this. And it's not prepared for the nine months without a horse race primary to follow. What are they going to fill their time with? Mm. They will find out. Let's talk more about that in a few minutes. But I wanted to ask you first, Jeff, how big would you say this movement is? Uh, the, the only answer that I care about is that it's big enough to win and threaten us all and threaten the whole globe. I think it's big enough to win uh, outright if I if I trust uh, the polling. Um, and I think it's big enough to win an electoral victory. Um, remember, of course, that, you know, depending on how you count it in, in 2020, people say Trump lost by 7 million votes. No, he lost by 45 to 70,000 votes. And the states that mattered. And already we're seeing some of those states have gone. That doesn't mean it's inevitable, but it means if you're sitting there reassuring yourself, um, I have to say, I keep hearing from people from San Francisco saying, thank God this doesn't affect me, mm. uh, which is a real failure of understanding of, of the United States and national law. Um, uh, I think it's big enough to win. And that, that's, that's a big thing. And I think the other thing that's important is um, even as we saw the Haley and DeSantis, uh, uh, I have not been going to Trump rallies uh, this uh, this January. I was talking to a colleague who has in New Hampshire and Iowa, and although he's sure there are real hardcore DeSantis and oh, and Haley voters, he did not happen to meet any who said if Trump was a nominee that they wouldn't vote for them. And that, of course, includes Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis. Um, it's big enough to win and. That's what matters. And any of this other stuff of like, well, there's more of us and there are more of them that won't do us much good if Trump is in the White House. We have two related questions from listeners. Tim writes, I got to say, I'm blown away by today's program. Is this the culture of fame that is driving this? It feels like celebrity is now driving people. I understand that the wealthy loved Trump because he gave them a lot of tax breaks, but the middle class seems completely taken by the lies they are fed from Facebook, etc. Hang on to your hats. Carrie says, I have long been more concerned about why people have supported Trump than who Trump is. What motivates these people? How did we get here? Professor Pape, do you want to take those questions first? Uh, yeah, so we have a deeper analysis, Rose, than we've talked about so far. Um, again, um, uh, there's a good chance this will come out in The Guardian this weekend, uh, which is, that the perception of deep corruption in our democratic politics seems to be the anchor that is really driving this um, set of conspiracy, other conspiracy theories, um, other uh, radical support for Trump and the growing support for Trump, and also the backlash where the more Trump's indicted, the more that support grows. Now, let me just say that again, that the core here seems to be a prior anchor of the belief that our democratic politics is deeply corrupt. Uh, and this goes um, uh, right to the heart of how we've seen democratic backsliding in other democracies in history. So the famous case of the Weimar Republic, Germany in the 1920s, what scholars largely agree on is that it was the perception by the ordinary German that their democratic system had become thoroughly corrupt which was the key motivator leading them to support authoritarian solutions as essentially the lesser of two evils. Uh, Putin's rise in Russia in the 90s, uh, uh, our effort in the early 90s to do shock democratic therapy led to a kleptocracy, which pushed the average Russian toward Putin authoritarianism. Well, Trump seems to be following in a similar vein. And the reason it's such a puzzle, again, is because we're not that we're having such a hard time in the media actually talking about the fullness of this movement. We're having then an even harder time in the media truly explaining what's going on. Um, and I would just come back to the fact that we really can understand what is occurring in our country. But a lot of this is not coming from beating up on the Republicans. It means we've really got to just engage more with the mainstream media. The other issue that you have brought up in past interviews, Professor Pape, is that when you look at what the January 6th insurrectionists believe, they're very fearful. They talk about this, you know, the so-called replacement 
uh, great replacement theory that there's a demographic change happening in the country and it's happening maliciously. This is really important to talk about also. Yes. Let me say, so I gave you like what's happening. And then the first level proximate education is the belief that the demo our democracy is thoroughly corrupt. What seems to be driving that rose is a still deeper set of beliefs that we're having demographic change occurring in our country, which we all would actually we all know is true. Um, but what is that deeper belief is that there's a malicious effort by the Democratic Party to replace the specifically white electorate with a new electorate that will guarantee the future of uh, victories of the Democratic Party into the future. Fully a third of the radical support by Donald Trump are made up of people who think that actually they have no chance of winning in 2024. So if they can't win in 2024, a lot of them are opening to go back to violence. And that's rooted in this idea of the great replacement, that it's not simply demographic change happening uh, without malicious uh, intent, that it's actually caused by malicious uh, elites, especially democratic elites. And you see Donald Trump, what he's doing is feeding all of these uh, links in the chain I'm painting that starts with the fear of the great replacement goes to the idea that our democracy has become thoroughly corrupt, which then leads to the uh, growing and large support for Trump as uh, he can paint efforts to indict him, uh, the 14th Amendment, as simply in line with the bigger picture he's painting of the world. Jeff, what would you add? Well, uh, if, if I could, I've got a few sentences. I should have spent time trying to boil this down. I've got a few sentences from the book I would share. And, 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 and what I think is important is to talk about um, how Trump is in the movement. Everything, uh, I concur with everything uh, uh, Professor Pape is, is saying, it, it speaks to this range of emotions that is actually absent in a lot of American politics, which all usually is aspirational and speaks of hope. Trumpism also speaks of fear. It speaks to revenge. It's speaks to ecstasy and lust. Trump rallies, as many have observed, are like Grateful Dead uh, concerts. But, uh, and then, of course, there's whiteness. And, and, and so what I was, when I tried to express it, I said such victims feel themselves drawn together not by whiteness, by, but by that of which it is made. They don't see themselves as drawn by whiteness, but the components of it, by their belief in a strong man and their desire for an iron-fisted God and the love of the way guns make them feel inside, their grief over COVID-19, their denial of COVID-19, their loathing of systemic as descriptive of that which they can't see, can't hold in their hands and weigh, their certainty that countless children are being taken, stolen, and raped, or if not in body, then in spirit, indoctrinated to hate themselves. They're angry about their own bodies about how other people's bodies make them feel, about eating too much because they're afraid they won't have enough, about not having enough, about others having more. They are drawn together by their love of fairness, which is how it used to be. They're certain they remember, or if they're too young, they've been told, or maybe they've all just seen it in a movie. And I think, you know, I mentioned 300 before. You can't underestimate the ways in which uh, Trumpism speaks to that that narrative power. And just in the same way that we hear so much civil war talk now, right? And yet those of us, uh, most of us who are American citizens have never experienced a civil war. So which movie are we drawing it from? Is it the blue and the gray? Is it Red Dawn, the imagination of Patrick Swayze in the hills with his band of football players taking on the Russians or the Chinese? It's a fiction. And the fiction is much, much more attractive when, as Professor Pape says, you're afraid, you are redirecting your anger along racial lines, um, and you don't have the language to describe this, but the movies or the stories we live by do. Mm. Gosh, this brings up so many issues. Uh, can you both talk about where, if if we know, where these people get their information from? I, I think... I spent a lot of time thinking about how the media ecosystem has changed so drastically. I have friends who've lost loved ones to QAnon. You know, I have friends who simply get their news from YouTube shows, people we've never heard of. 
Um, I'm in a lot of healthcare spaces because I, it's one of my hobbies. And I find that people in some of the healthcare spaces proudly say they do not follow news at all because it's all BS. So I just wonder, Professor Pape, and I don't want to paint a broad brush about health spaces, but it really does strike me. Professor yeah. Pape, what are your thoughts about uh, where people so get their So this is another big, mis- a big misconception, Rose. So we've done on our nationally representative surveys, which um, we've done, again, 12 of them every three months. Um, for years, we routinely asked the questions of their primary media sources, and then we correlated that with the radical support for Trump. And we've come up with the same answer over and over and over again, which is it is not these extremist websites. Uh, uh, it is not Rumble. It, it is not Getter. Um, what's really happening is that they are going to mainstream sites. Fox, uh, Tox Radio is, is a pretty big area, by the way. Um, and there's, um, uh, the, it's mainstream cable for the most part, which includes Newsmax, not simply Fox. So many of your listeners should Google Newsmax and discover that this has become the Trump insurrectionist channel, making all these arguments I've just made about the great replacement going to corruption, going to the support and the widening of support. They bring plenty of people on who have college degrees and, and so forth and so on. Um, and so, what we have is this isn't just a, you know, internet phenomenon. Um, this is a phenomenon of mainstream media, which it almost has to be if what we're seeing are tens and tens of millions of people going down this road. Um, and it's just, again, it's another, uh, I think, comforting thought that, oh, it's the potency of somebody sitting in their basement for 12 hours a day. And it's all, well, there's really not that many people who do that. And we know because we've asked those questions in our surveys. I'm not simply guessing about that. And I think, again, this just speaks to the general, like, um, you know, weakness here where we're not giving the depth that we're doing here in this hour, and we can really get into these material, into the issues. Right. You definitely need time. What would you add, Jeff? Well, I think that's just right. And I, and I would add to that that it's not so much these uh um, the Breitbart's and Daily Callers, although I don't want to estimate, underestimate how big those are in the way that, you know, YouTube people we've never heard of may have, you know, 10 times the audience any of us will ever reach. But more than that, I want to emphasize that even since 2016, the radical erosion in U.S. media sources now are poised by 2025. A third of the newspapers that are out there today, most of them ghosts of their former selves, will be gone. If you go back to 2016, you had some sort of second tier Sources, Huffington Post and BuzzFeed and so on. And Salon was sending out reporters and so on. All that's gone. Twitter as a really good news source is gone. And so then you get to this phenomena where, you know, incredible polling that shows that, uh, a study of uh, 18 to 29 year olds who are switching from Biden to Trump. And one of the indicators by which, which tells, and there's a significant number of them, not a majority, but a significant number, um, the more in intensely uh, critical they are of Israel, the more they believe, as do I, that Israel is in fact targeting civilians. The more they have that kind of correct analysis, the more they come to a very strange prescription, which is to switch to Trump. And they bought the con that Trump is a, a, a an anti-war voter. And the media, the mass media that might sort of say, let us, you know, let us give you broader context so that you don't uh, uh, pair your critique of, well, if you're unhappy with Biden, then Trump must be the guy. That is shrinking, shrinking, shrinking. We have major American cities without a daily newspaper, without uh, a substantial local news. That, I think, is as much of a crisis as what's going on, as Professor Pape says, on those um, on those cable news shows and so on. And of course, they go hand in hand. What will it take in our remaining minutes uh, to ensure that in the coming nine months that the broadcast media do not treat this election like any other election? Because that's what it sounds like now. 
Uh, well, Rose, there's two points I'd like to make. One is uh, many more versions of this show that we're doing here, which is simply not being reproduced. And I know because uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm doing much smaller versions here. This, The second thing, I, though, I want to point out, Rose, though, is um, people are wondering, well, what does this mean in terms of uh, 2020, in terms of possibly changing election results? Imagine if we had this show, this hour, happening in a suburb in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Michigan, uh, which is very much the, you know, sort of a more conservative part of Michigan or around the suburbs of Pittsburgh. These are not the blue collar parts I'm talking about. I'm talking about where college educated Republicans live. This would make a real difference and do this in all seven swing states. And now we're talking about a real difference in that 50, 60,000, 70,000 people who are really going to determine the future of our democracy in 2024. And so I really think that it's not true that we're stuck with the echo chambers of the news media. It's not true. What is true is that we basically keep, we're, we're, we're just uh, allowing ourselves to this fatalistic set of outcomes um, because we don't really, we're not understanding enough of the diagnosis to then have what could actually be the surgery that would really make a difference. And I think there are straightforward points plans that would actually, yes, it would cost some money to do these things, but nowhere near as much as we're going to waste doing a lot of things that aren't going to matter. Jeff, your final thoughts? We have 30 seconds. Uh, (laughs) More shows like this, exactly. And, you know, there's only so much we can do about the CNNs of the world, but I will put this challenge to other progressive like like this show is let us turn our attention toward this. I know we want to turn away right now. There is a big move toward news avoidance. I understand it, but we've got to have shows. We've got to be talking with Professor Pape, with myself, with all those other folks who are out there doing this work and not just doing the punditry. Mm, such such a good point. Jeff Charlotte is the author of The Family, The Secret Fundamentalism at the Heart of American Power. Check out the Netflix documentary series. His latest book is The Undertow, Scenes from a Slow Civil War. Jeff Charlotte is professor in the art of writing and director of creative writing at Dartmouth College. Robert Pape is professor of political science at the University of Chicago. He and his team have extensively covered those who've been charged with crimes related to January 6th. Jeff and Professor Pape, thank you so so much for your work and thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank Great you. to be here. Thank you. And thank you for joining us. I'm Rose Aguilar. It's your call. <laughs>